Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 28th of October 2019 and this is episode 134. On this week's Dispatches podcast, Dr Helen Brooks, Reader in Theatre and Cultural History, and Dr Philippa Gregory, History HPL Tutor, both from the University of Kent, talk about Bruce Bainfather's famous cartoon, The Other Ole, and its impact and resonance during the Great War and after. I spoke to Helen and Pippa from the University of Kent in Canterbury. Helen and Pip, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourselves and how you became interested in the Great War? Pip, it might be good to start with you. Uh, right, well, I started predominantly with the uh, cartoon side of things, which is where the better old technically starts. And I think we met in the special collections mm. at Kent University when you started thinking about doing some theatre on the Great War. Yeah. And I said, I've got some cartoons about that. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, <laughs> weirdly, mine came out of my teaching. So mm. my background originally was working on 18th century theatre. And I was teaching some students who were doing some stuff on Victorian Edwardian theatre and who were saying, oh, I really want to do something about the First World War. And I was saying to them, look, you know, nobody does anything on theatre in the First World War. It's this real kind of blank spot. And they did this incredible piece of work using materials in special collections. Yeah. And at that point, I thought, oh, OK, there's something really interesting here. Why is nobody looking at this? Where, where, you know, kind of where are these gaps? And as Pip says, that's when we kind of bumped into it's each other yeah. and thought, actually, we're both doing the First World War from kind of different angles to how it's normally done as well. Yeah. And then it kind of just spiraled from there. And then it was the centenary. So it kind of hasn't stopped. Today we're going to be talking about Bruce Bain's father, the cartoonist, and his famous image, the better old. Can we start by talking about who Bruce Bain's father was? Well, Bain's father is uh, quite an unusual character in many ways. He was actually born in India in 1873. And his father was in the military. So growing up, he very much had the aspirations that he wanted to be into the military in some way, shape or form. However, he also went through much of his childhood in England and was notorious in school for doodling on his exercise books. So much so that there are anecdotes of teachers asking for his books back so they could keep them while he had a new book so they could keep his cartoons. And that's very much where his cartooning started, although he never saw himself as a cartoonist. Technically, he always believed he was better than that and he was an artist. And it's for that reason that he went to art school and he actually trained under John Hassel, who was very famous as an artist and cartoonist at the time as well. And in so doing, he managed to become far more proficient in his art. But he also took various exams to try and get into the military. He failed a couple of times. I think it was about 1908 that he finally passed and went into the army. Went in and acted as as a soldier for a while until he was um, asked to leave. I believe there may have been some illness related to that and that was why he came out. And he then went back into public service at home, didn't enjoy it, got himself a job in various positions. I think there was some in architecture, some in guesswork, some in all sorts of bits and pieces that he did and managed to lose his job in about May, June time, 1914. And then this handy thing called the First World War began around August and so he signed back up. 
and was able to get back into his second love, which was as a soldier, and went back into the army. So I think that takes us mm. right back up to where we want to be on that. But uh, yes, very much two aspirations, art and military, mm. all the way through. So how did he become a cartoonist in the trenches? Well, as I say, he had always been an artist in some way, shape or form. But when he was in the army, he discovered that the bystander quite regularly sent out or editions of the bystander were sent out to them. And the images that were turning up in the bystander looked really familiar and similar to the sorts of things that he did. Well, that was how he saw, how he viewed it. And because of that, he decided he would take a shot in the dark and send off a cartoon to the bystander, which he did fairly early in 1915. It was accepted and it was taken on board and published and was very popular. So they asked him for a few more. And he kept producing various um, images for the bystander until around 1915 when he was shell-shocked out of the army and he there's there is another story of him being in hospital in Boulogne on his way back to the UK and somebody else seeing his name on the foot of his bed and saying you that Ben's father who makes this cartoon look this cartoon that I've got here and shows him and said yes actually that's that's the Mm. one that I one of the ones I did and hadn't realised quite how popular he had become. And so in doing that, he continued to produce cartoons for the bystander. And then in 1915, again, it continued on. He had become more and more popular. And coming up to Christmas, they liked to have a big edition, big cartoon, make the point. So they asked him for another cartoon. And that was when he put this particular image together. He called it one of our minor wars. So not actually called the better old. That was a title that came later. But he put the caption at the bottom. Well, if you know of a better old, go to it. Which brings us neatly on to the, the challenge we have here in describing a visual medium um, sure. through the means of audio. Can you tell us or can you describe the image that we're all so familiar with? Right. So it, it is, I mean, it's a very simple image in its own right. It is two soldiers in a hole in the middle of a battle. There are explosions and clouds exploding above them. There is one gun that's set in front of the old and there are two men in it, both looking a bit tired, bedraggled and fed up. We assume one has asked the other, is there anywhere better we could be at this point? And that is when the uh, larger of the two characters, who we believe is most likely Old Bill, who was Ben's father, the most common character, is the one who then says, well, if you know better, I'll go to it. So it's that opportunity. There has to be somewhere else that you could go, but actually there isn't at the moment. Make the most of what you've got. That brings us to our next question is... When was this image published and how was it received? So it was about November 1915 that it was first published. And it was a very popular image. And Ben's father writes that he wasn't overly impressed with it. He threw it out quickly just because they'd asked him for one. So he sent this image off quite quickly. And the feedback from it was actually, that, that's a good idea. That, that makes sense. So there was something that resonated with the general public at home, and particularly the soldiers who were home on leave, who would say, well, yeah, that, that's kind of what it's like, trying to explain the situation that they couldn't explain mm-hmm. otherwise. This image seemed to make sense to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So it became a very popular image. And uh, yeah. Throughout the war, there were a lot of people going, oh, yeah, I remember that idea, I remember that picture, and kept using it. So, so. And Helen, does it make it into the theatre? It does, yes. And in fact, that, that point Pip just made about how it kind of becomes a, 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 a means for people to talk to their loved ones at home about what it's like, um, that, that's kind of the crux of why it becomes so, in fact, so popular in theatre. So um, you actually, what happens is that Ben's father in July 1916 
um, is developing a play with an established playwright called Basil MacDonald Hastings. And Ben's father, we don't think, has written any plays before. He's done a bit of amateur theatre, he's done a bit of panto, um, but he, um, I think what happens here is that he sees other trench sketches, um, so other plays set in the front line, in the trenches, um, which are being described by reviewers as being Ben's father characters. And so I suspect what he sees as an opportunity here to actually get on board and to actually create a play, um, a piece of, of theatre himself. So he starts developing um, his first sketch, which is called Ben's Fatherland or The Johnson Old. Um, and that's around July 1916. So in September 1916, that premieres at the Hippodrome in London as part of a review called Flying Colours. So it's just a really short little sketch, but it becomes this massive hit and it gets performed over 200 times. And it then actually kind of takes on a life of its own and goes on and gets performed as an independent sketch in other reviews at places like the Victoria Palace. So it becomes this whole entity in its own right, which is really unusual for such a short little, it's kind of a 10 minute little sketch, which really is bringing to, to life actually the um, kind of the Christmas truce. So it's set in Plug Street um, during Christmas 1914, which Ben's father had been at. Um, so it's taking that kind of autobiographical um, experience of his and bringing it to life. So that becomes a big hit. Um, and then by mid-January 1917, so only a few months later, he's busy working on his next one, which is called Where Did That One Go? Um, and that one opens at the uh, as part of the Seesaw, which is another review at the Comedy Theatre in London. Doesn't have quite the same um, longevity um, as the Johnson Old does, um, but very, very quickly, he's already working on what becomes the theatrical production of, I would say, of the whole war. It is seen as the biggest hit of the war, certainly in terms of a play that tackles tackles the war itself. Um, and that is the play, The Better Old, uh, which premieres at the Oxford Theatre, which had been a music hall and, and gets kind of reclassified as a theatre for this production. And that opens on the 6th of August, 1917. So tell me about The Better Better all. Um, I'll admit the H there. What was it? A comedy or was it a tragedy? What type of play was it? So it's a little bit of everything. Um, it draws on a, a number of different genres, as, as reviewed did at the time. It's described as being structured in two explosions, which we can read as acts, seven splinters, which are scenes, and a gas attack. And it's in some ways I think what's really interesting is that Ben's father takes the structure of, of the experience of being a soldier at the front line and he replicates it on stage. So it begins with his, his three Tommies, Old Bill, um, Bert and Alf, who are behind the lines enjoying some theatre. Um, and in every scene, they are getting closer and closer to the front line. And what's really interesting about it is that in a way, nothing really happens until the very end when there's this gas attack and there's a sort of melodramatic ending where Old Bill saves the day. But for the majority of the production, what we have is these, these three Tommies standing around, chaffing, making jokes, singing some songs, receiving letters, receiving newspapers, and actually all the comedy and all the, the references are 
seen by soldiers who come to see the play and are seen by people at the time as being very realistic. So they absolutely draw on references that are both coming out of the cartoons that that um, Pip has highlighted, but also are about references that they're drawing on references that everybody was familiar with. So jokes about plum and apple jam, jokes about getting stuck in the mud, um, being like flypaper, all these things that really resonated for people at the time. So it is comic, but it's also seen as people, seen by people who see it as actually being very um, heartrending. So you get lots of stories about um, people going to see it and weeping, but feeling better for it. Is the play slightly politically incorrect by today's standards? Oh, actually, weirdly, not massively. No, you don't read it and go, oh, that's really on the edge. So there's no, whereas some plays, um, there's lots of racial terms, which today you just go, oh, how do I even deal with putting that online? Um, There's nothing like that in it, largely because there aren't any non-white characters in it. Um, There are a few female characters who appear briefly and are the subject of I think Alf's romantic intentions but there's nothing in a kind of inappropriate there um yes, certainly nothing old girl's wife. yes yeah which is placid and it is expected if anything it's kind of it's thing. very there's a sort of domestic angle oh. to it and it's you know the three of them are like a little family getting through this experience yeah. and if anything the I suppose what really stands out for me is the pathos of it. So you get this moment where they're waiting for letters and everybody else gets letters, but they don't get any letters. Mm. And this kind of sadness, and then they sit and read the papers together. And there's, there is a kind of, yeah, domesticity yeah. to the experience of life at the front, which I think connects into, you know, what a lot of men yeah. said about what it was like. And, you know, that, that kind of alternate version mm. of home life, which oh, they created. The father and totally. the kids, yeah. they're, they're forced to do this. But... Yeah. They're excited, whereas they're just going, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But other than, yeah, I mean, there's really very minimal female presence in it. There's no non-white presence in it. So there's kind of not much opportunity to be politically incorrect in a way. Yeah, so it's it's quite interesting in that sense, because a lot of the other plays, there are quite a few aspects. I mean, the other thing about, I suppose, the better role as well is that you don't see the enemy in it. So most First World War plays, certainly melodramas, you've got, you know, stereotypically dastardly German villains, you know, terrible Prussian officers who are twiddling their moustaches and, you know, looking incredibly evil with these wonderful accents that are written in the script for the actors. So you've got that and you've got this, you know, it's something I'm writing on at the moment, this kind of awful representation of Germans, but which is also very pantomimic and is really fun, I think, for the actors to play with. And, and then you've got, you know, heroines who are being raped and who are being dragged off and all sorts of awful threats. Um, and very often the censor will be like, uh-uh, that's going too far, you know, and, you know, we can't have, you can imply that, but you can't show anything <laughs> and that sort of thing. But because the better role is set entirely at the front line, it's in that male world, actually there's no, it, it's noted at the time as being a production which doesn't have a Red Cross nurse in it or a German And that's really unusual. So what's the relationship between the stage production and the cartoons? How does that develop over the war? The stage production in many ways uses so many of the cartoons that the public would have recognised. So Ben's father had been producing cartoons since early 1915 and he's putting production on in 1917. There's a whole catalogue of cartoons that are used. Um, so I think you mentioned earlier, where did that one go? Mm. Is one of his first initial cartoons that he puts out there where the uh, part of the the barricade that they're looking at has just disappeared next Mm. to them. Uh, There are other cartoons that you can see being referenced throughout the play. There is the explanation of why 
uh, old Bill always has a balaclava on. And he explains you know, by writing a letter home to his wife, please thank the uh, vicar's wife for making mm. those socks. I'm mm. using one as the balaclava for my head and the other is where I keep all my clothes. So you suggest mm. that there's the connection to the war where we know that lots of women at home were making socks, even if they had never knitted before in their lives. And the sense that perhaps they might not fit mm. was coming through quite nicely with just through the cartoon that people understood, but also then making reference to it. Um, there is the song in the in the play you mm. know, about plum and apple jam, mm. and that is the eternal question that old Bill is always asking. The eternal question is, when are we going to have strawberry? Mm. Because they didn't have that. Plum and apple was much easier to make, much more readily produced than strawberry. While well, there's only a small season in England for strawberries, so therefore you didn't get them mm. particularly often. So there's all these references mm. to other cartoons that he has produced, but he also makes reference to other elements of cartooning that were in the world that people would have known about. So there's a lovely moment where the uh, sergeant is walking across the stage with a box of stuff. He puts the box down, looks up, lights his uh, cigarette. The explosion goes off in the background. He goes, ah, for Mo Kaiser, picks up his box and walks on again. Now, to most people, this would have made complete sense because Bert Thomas's cartoon, Arthur Mo Kaiser, of a soldier lighting a cigarette is the most famous one for producing funds for buying cigarettes for soldiers mm. throughout the war. Mm. So there's all of these connections that just make sense to a public of that time. And I think it must have been so exciting to go see it <coughs> and to see all these kind of familiar cartoons mm. and familiar images brought to life in front yeah. of you. So there, there would have been a lot of pleasure in getting the jokes and mm. kind of being in on the joke for the audience as yeah. well, which I think explains in part some of its popularity as well because it was just a phenomenal hit. So who actually goes to see the play and what sort of numbers are we talking about? I mean we're talking about you know uh, it, it's kind of it's comparable to the Battle of the Somme film um, in a way in, in, a, in a theatrical context so um, the production at the Oxford Theatre in London is entirely sold out and there were, there were actually wonderful cartoons which appear in the papers mm of um, all the queues of people who are desperately trying to get in to get tickets. Within one month, a Cochrane, who's the producer of it, has decided that he's going to actually produce uh, multiple touring versions. So within a month, one touring version's gone out. He actually decided at one point that he's going to set up touring tents so that he can make sure that everyone in the country has access to see this play because it's so important. It doesn't come off in the end for lots of reasons. but um, So it actually goes on tour. Um, so throughout the rest of the war, from um, October 1917 onwards, you have three productions being toured at the same time. Um, so you've got the London one and you've got two regional productions going all over the place. And many of those go back more than once to the same theatre and people go to see it more than once. And then actually you have a film production as well. So the film comes out in 1918 yeah. and people seem to have gone to see the film one <coughs> night and then gone to see the theatre production the next night. And whether they're doing that because they want to compare and contrast or just because they can't get enough, who knows? But the cinemas would put the film on next door to yeah. the theatre. So they were literally buildings next to each other yes. and there would be queues out of both. Mm. People wanted to see both opportunities yeah. to, to yeah. view this. And I think what's important as well is, is the way that actually soldiers on leave are going to see this. So we know soldiers on leave went to the theatre a lot anyway, but this seems to have been a production that really captured the, the, the popular imagination. And people were actively going, they were taking their mothers, they were taking their sweethearts, 
And there were there were lots of reports of Cochrane particularly overhearing people saying as they're leaving the theatre, you know, don't ask me what it's like. That's what it's like out there, you know. And I'm all right because actually it's quite a reassuring production. Although it's seen as showing the reality of the war, it is a sanitised, comforting reality of the war. But it's very much used as it's a sort of it's family viewing in a way. Yeah. I think, yeah. How's this officialdom view the cartoons and the play? Are they generally, um, do they generally support them and, and think they're positive to the war of it, or do they see them as slightly subversive? Mm, I mean, certainly in terms of the theatre, there's no real response officially as such. Um, in order to be produced up until 1968, any piece of theatre had to have a licence from the Lord Chamberlain's office anyway. And this goes through without any queries at all. So it's clearly seen as, as something that is, you know, good for the public morale. Yeah, um, this carries on as well. I mean, after the war, Ben's father, although he is forgotten about in many ways for a while, he makes a comeback in the Second World War as an officer cartoonist. Not under the British authorities, though. It's the Americans who take him on in that respect. So there are other nations that have noticed the morale boost that he has provided for soldiers, and they want him in the same capacity to come back in and bring that morale that is a positive thing. And does the play continue to be popular into the 20s? Ah, well, no, not really. That's what's quite interesting. It is very much of its moment. Um, so it does tour internationally, um, and it does very well. It, it goes over to America, it goes to India, it goes to Australia, I think. Um, yeah. So it, it has a huge interna international um, spread, really. But it, uh, about a month after the war ends, the British production shut down. Um, and then there are attempts to do sequels, which really don't go down very well in the 1920s. So it's actually something that, although is a massive, massive hit, is so much of its moment and is so connected to the popular culture of the time and to feelings about the war and actually to, the, to that morale um, that Pip's just mentioned, that, that, that it really doesn't have the lifespan beyond the war. Do you think that the meaning of the cartoons changed? Hey, does the all have a different sort of idea behind it nowadays? Well, as you say, the, the play very much finished within a few months of the war. In contrast, the cartoon has quite a considerable mm. longevity. It comes in fits and starts as we go through the following century. But I mean, realistically, the, the most copies of the better old, as it became known, in cartoon world are predominantly within the war. So not only by Ben's father himself, because he reproduces the same image, image at least three or four times, just with different people in the whole. Mm. Because, well, that clearly is it's working, so you go with it and you reuse it. But other artists borrow from him either the title or the image and that is reproduced quite a few times in well up to the 20s in the 1920s there are hardly any reproductions 30s there's a few more 40s again not quite so much 60s there's a couple and um, the better old does go to the moon so you know 1967 the better old is on the moon when there are debates about whether um, the military should have control of various things so clearly you put the better old on the moon and that's, that's out of the way, why not? Uh, everything is safe there. 70s, again, there's far more. 80s, we have a lovely reproduction with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the hole, because who else are you going to put in there at that particular point in time? So I think that was about 1984. And then coming into the most recent years, 2014, Michael Gove was put in there. Ironically, 
straight after he said that we shouldn't teach the First World War <laughs> using Blackadder, because clearly that doesn't make any sense. But I, I don't know whether he realised quite the context of how he was put in the hole or what that meant. So the meaning perhaps changes quite a bit, but the idea is still there. So it's an ongoing feature in those terms that people recognise the idea of having a better role than maybe there isn't one, but don't necessarily know the context of where it came from in order to understand the, the backhanded compliment that was sort of paid to him with that one. Um, but, you know, it, it goes up to more recent times as well. 2017, Donald Trump did find himself in the hole. And uh, last year we had the entire Brexit party thrown in there. So, you know, anyone in the, the key members of politics in Britain were just chucked in the hole because there's lots of times when it has been reused for different reasons and different concepts. I mean, obviously, you've, you've shown that the, the, the nature of the OL is in use today. How many people are aware of its history? The original history, probably very few. In real terms, I know it particularly well. Tony and Belle May Holt have written quite a few books on the better role and on Ben's father. Uh, Mark Warby is Mr. Ben's father himself online. And if you go through Twitter, you can find every cartoon he has reproduced throughout the entire centenary and on the date and at the right time which is a fantastic skill mm. so he has gone through mm. lots of those um Lucinda Gosling has also written a book about him but then that's mm. the, the I can name those people is probably suggesting not that many for the original there's very little awareness and knowledge but there is almost a professional awareness and a professional memory almost for, through the cartooning world. Um, a lot of the images that I've just spoken about, the different people that have been put in the hole over the years. Um, definitely Peter Brooks uses the, the hole quite a few times. There are, uh, so he was doing it in 1984. Mm. So there are certain cartoonists that we recognise that, I mean, Peter Brooks of the times mm. has reproduced the hole a few times. There are others who have reused it going through the decades and the century it's it's just certain professional memories do hold but perhaps not for the public as a broader spectrum Helen has the better old actually been revived as a play at all uh, there was an amateur <coughs> revival uh, at the start of the centenary um, but beyond that no um, and I think again that speaks to the fact that it is it, its popularity at the time was so much bound up with the contemporary references. And it's really hard to get back to that. So while some of the wartime productions, particularly things like, um, I'm thinking The Man Who Stayed at Home, which was a, a December 1914 massive hit um, about a, a sort of Bertie Wooster-esque kind of spy. Um, and, and you know things like that actually have a, um, a lot more potential, I think, to be restaged today because um, they kind of tap into that um, kind of, I, I guess, revival and the fascination people have for the, the 1920s and that kind of um, culture around Agatha Christie and spies and crime and cosy crime, as I think it's now called. Um, but the better role was just fundamentally every aspect of it is either referencing the cartoon or referencing the experience of the war. And that's a wider context that as an audience today, we just we can't get at. Mm. And we, I think we both went and saw the reproduction mm. of Better On on stage. And I know there were moments when I was in myself going, that's really funny because of yeah. you know, nobody gets it. OK, don't laugh right now yeah. because it's just an inappropriate time. Mm. But it has been, now become an inappropriate time, whereas, you know, 1917, everyone in the theatre yes. would have been laughing at those jokes because they would have known mm. and understood mm. yes. the context of what was being talked about. Whereas today, the reproduction didn't have quite the same mm. power no. in that respect. no. Which was a bit of a shame, but 
yeah, but it was quite actually really interesting to see it, yeah. I think, and to oh, see that gap between even our knowledge, but the fact that we're not living through that, the fact yes. that it's not a kind of embodied experience for us compared to people at the time. Oh, we can go yes. intellectually, ah, oh, that's really interesting, but it's yeah. funny on that level. But yeah. actually that, that difference between something, I guess it's a bit like, you know, political comedy and things today that are so much, you know, so responsive to what's happening even mm. week by week. And that if we look, you know, look back 100 years time, actually that that comedy won't work in the same way. And I think that's happening with The Better Whole as well. So what do you think The Better Whole in terms of its cartoon uh, and its its theatre production tells us about culture during the First World War? It tells us a lot about the way people understood humour and the way that they are learning through humour quite often. And a lot of the cartoons that Ben Scarlett, certainly in other cartoons put out, were trying to teach so there's a sort of didactic element behind each of these images. You see a character doing something silly and you know that you probably shouldn't do that silly thing because it's funny when somebody else does it, but it's not as funny when you do it. Mm. So there's a learning impact through that as well. The, the, the humour is of its time in many ways, but then humour does go around in cycles. So perhaps that's why we can understand it and at the same time can see that it's a bit detached from where we are now. Mm. I think what's interesting in terms of the theatre production is the way in which, I mean, for me, the way in which I suppose theatre more generally can give you an insight into how people were responding to what was happening around them. Um, so as a, as a cultural historian, I'm, I'm really fascinated in, the, fascinated in the ways that things like literature and, and cartoons and poetry, etc. but theatre is often left out of this. Um, and the way in which when we look at these moments of performance, which were so hugely popular for people at the time, kind of what's that tapping into? What does that provide people with? Um, and, and when we look at the reviews of um, the productions and what contemporaries are saying about the experience of going to see this play, we can start to see the way in which it does, you know, genuinely provide a means by which they can kind of mediate their experience, they can cope. It provides a way of coping with the horrific experience of going through the war, um, you know, the horrific experience of having your loved ones away and not knowing when you'll see them next and worrying about them. Um, and so it, it kind of gives us that way of getting at experiences of his of the historical past beyond sort of the facts and figures I guess and also the you know the different ways in which aspects of the war were challenged as well so you know that that sort of didactic yeah. element and the the political edge that there is to both the cartoons and the mm. um and the play as well it's you know it's, it's ground up it's coming from the men who were there who'd seen it and I think that's what comes across in a lot of the commentaries on it as well is that yeah. you know this is coming from a man who's been there he's in the trenches he's one of them um it, it's not coming from playwrights who've sat at home and don't know what it's really like so that sense of a voice a voice of the men of the Tommy is really important. And finally where can people learn more about Bainesfather's Better Ole and your work? Uh, well, I say at the moment, we've, there's lots of bits and pieces that are out there, and certainly the Holtz books probably the, the easiest mm. way of accessing what is available. Uh, there, there will be a Cambridge Companion to British theatre during the First World War, which will be coming out in the next couple of years, which I'm editing. But for immediate access, if people are interested in thinking about theatre um, and its response to the war, 
Um, I've been running a project over the last few years called the Great War Theatre Project, uh, which people can find at greatwartheatre.org.uk. Um, and that provides everyone with a database of every single play, including The Better Role, which was produced in uh, England, Scotland and Wales throughout the First World War. So um, we've also got a lot of blog posts up there about all sorts of different aspects of theatre and the war. Um, and it does, I think, um, what one of the things behind that project was really about bringing to light this really overlooked aspect of um, cultural history and First World War history, um, which both Pip's work <coughs> and my own is in our different ways by looking at cartoons and looking yeah. at theatre is very much about taking a different angle on the First World War and thinking about what that different angle can offer us in terms of our understandings of the experiences of war. So, yeah, I, I totally recommend have a look at the website and get in touch with us as well, yeah. because uh, we're both always really happy to hear from people who might have questions or might have different bits of information which tap into what we're working on. Ladies, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.